Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks. It's always a podcast. Always a podcast. Ever and anon, a podcast. <laughs> a podcast, a hark, a podcast approaches. What antiques are we talking about this week? I wanted to talk about something weird. Often hated, often imitated. Putting the freak in Antiques Freaks? Yeah, we're gonna get a little freakier than usual. You know what I'm doing? I'm taking off the waistcoat, the embroidered waistcoat. I'm shucking it. What? Yeah. In front of ladies? Yeah, in front of whoever's looking. Oh, God. I want to get human. Disgusting. Bite your tongue, sir. Oh, no, I got fancy again. I want to talk about black velvet paintings. Hell fucking yes. I have waited for this day (laughs) for so many years. And now, gloriously, it has arrived. Please tell me everything about black velvet paintings. Well, black velvet paintings actually have a very, very rich history. Almost as rich as the fabric upon which the masterpieces are painted upon. Truly. As the name suggests, black velvet painting is the art of painting, either in oil or acrylic, upon velvet, typically black velvet, although many other colors are used. Now, how far back do you think black velvet painting goes? To the invention of velvet? Precisely. Very good. People think that it probably originated somewhere near Kashmir, which is where the fabric came from. There's historical evidence that Marco Polo himself recorded seeing black velvet paintings while he was going through Kashmir. While he was slurping up his noodles? Yeah, while he was doing that. From there, black velvet paintings would become more and more popular in the 16-1700s. You could see them depicting religious icons and saints in Eastern Europe. One of the oldest surviving velvet paintings that we still have is a tiger masterwork from 19th century Japan, painted on a cream-colored piece of velvet. And even in the mid-1800s through the 1890s, it was frequently a hobby for upper-class English people. In fact, painting on velvet was seen as one of those accomplished artistic skills that a young woman could have. You know, velvet pillows for interior decor or just the art of painting on something unusual. This does come, of course, with some of the racist overtones that was referred to as oriental painting. And it made its way to the Philippines and Mexico through Spanish conquistadors well before the 1890s. People from Mexico insist that this is where modern-day Mexican painters began the tradition of velvet painting, and frankly, I'm inclined to believe them. The more you poke around, the more Americans insist that they're the reason that velvet painting became synonymous with Mexico. That's an interesting take. It is a stupid one, isn't it? I don't think geography or linear time work like that. Nope, they sure don't. (laughs) Mexican peasants in Jalisco were actually recorded as using the technique of painting on velvet to decorate skirts and dresses. And velvet paintings were even somewhat mass-produced as early as the 1920s by a New York firm called Famco or the French American Manufacturing Company. Because of course we could blame the French for this. (laughs) So what that's telling me personally, and hopefully you too, is that velvet art was in and of itself an honored folk art. Yeah. So you might be asking yourself, when did that change? The 70s? Actually a little earlier than that. The 60s. The 1930s. Well, by Price is Right rules, I've just lost. (laughs) That's true, you did. You're gonna have to go home, I'm sorry. You can't get the car. Well... Looks like I hang up my podcasting hat. Yep, put it down. See y'all later. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, no, you lost the prices right, not the podcast. Oh, okay. (laughs) This is where we will enter... The Shadow Realm? Edgar Leeteg. Oh. Yeah, we're gonna get to the... Well, I wish we could put this guy in the Shadow Realm. This guy sucks. Oh, no. But he's important to this narrative. Although, this is the kind of guy... People who like this guy are the same kind of people who didn't understand the point of Fight Club. Oh, we've got one of these. We got one of these. 
But again, he was extremely important in popularizing the art form to Americans. So he was an American. He had trained as a sign painter. And (laughs) I'm sorry. I hate this guy so fucking much. During the Great Depression, he fled to Tahiti. For the worst thing you could imagine, he was being bullied for being successful. (laughs) He had a job as a foreman for a sign painting company. And the other workers resented him deeply because he was paid more and got more work than them during a time when people were absolutely desperate for work. Shocker. (laughs) The thing that really frustrates me is that the narrative surrounding this guy is that he sort of carved a space for himself out of the dirt of the Great Depression, when that is absolutely just sort of not the case. No, he already had a job and was doing fine. But then some preps stared at him. (laughs) He put his middle finger up. He tried to hack it as a freelance sign painter. Eventually, he started taking jobs in Hawaii and heard that there were some jobs doing interior design in Tahiti. So he went to Tahiti and then he just sort of stayed there. He did this all, by the way, uh, (laughs) almost a byline mentioned very infrequently with an inheritance from his grandmother. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Um... (laughs) So this guy, like bullying is serious business, D. I don't know why you're laughing. Again, it's the the level of like effort people go to try to turn this into like a self-made man thing. Yeah. He could only do freelancing because his mom let him have grandma's big inheritance money. But it's not as big as Billy's inheritance, so it's really nothing. The boys don't like me over at the firm, mother. Oh, by the way, his mom went with him to Tahiti originally, but he like immediately started boozing and just being an asshole. So they didn't make enough money and she went home. Wow. Poor little rich boy didn't know how to budget. (laughs) Can you imagine? It turned out he liked Tahiti and every now and again, people would buy his paintings. He began painting on velvet. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to editorialize here and I'm going to say this is apocryphal. Supposedly, he was trying to buy canvas and couldn't find anyone selling any and bought some cheap velvet off of a guy in desperation. Sounds fake, but okay. (laughs) Given that this art form had already existed, I'm assuming he just saw some velvet and decided to take a crack at it like literally any other artist looking at art material. But again, that's editorializing and all of the stories will tell you that it was a big, it was, a, it was an accidental discovery, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Most of what he painted was exactly what you'd expect. Local scenes from Tahiti, uh, specifically the island of Morea, which I mentioned just because God helped the poor women who had to deal with this dipshit the entire time he was there. Well, he was quoted himself as both referring to himself as like a drinking, womanizing, dope fiend scallywag. And then alternately also saying that that was an image he cultured because it made people buy his shit. Sure, Jan. Yeah, so I mean, (laughs) the thing is, I don't like either of those. Both of those dudes suck to be around, turns out. (laughs) He started making his money off of your typical noble savage horse shit and painting women that he, again, editorializing, I'm assuming, lied about sleeping with. We can only hope so. For their sake. And eventually he was discovered by some GIs in America who would fund him and make him super popular and bring a lot of his art back to America, which made him a ton of money, unfortunately. Because grandma's money wasn't enough? Well, he'd run through it already eating sandwiches and drinking booze. If he hadn't bought all those avocados, he could own a house by now. (laughs) What was he thinking? Well, he made enough money to buy an entire estate that he named, this is the only credit I'm going to give him, very funny, he named it the Villa Valor. All right, that's pretty good. (laughs) Admittedly, extremely funny. (laughs) Admittedly, very funny. His extremely colonialist, like, American depictions of Tahiti made him very, very popular with Americans, to the point where even alive, some of his paintings are selling for the $10,000 range. Mercifully, he did die. (laughs) 
So I partially included this because he is very important to sort of the story of Black Velvet art. Mostly because I get to include this part, which is that how he died was that he found out that he had an extremely antibiotic resistant venereal disease and he got mad and got so drunk that he fell off the back of his motorcycle and died. Wow. Damn, dude. Others. <laughs> he <laughs> To quote a good friend's father, it's not funny, but it is. Oh, boy. Variations on the tale suggest that he was actually mad that the person who told him he had this untreatable venereal disease had not told him directly, but was telling anyone on the island (laughs) so that women would not sleep with him. So he was angry at them for performing a public service. Yes. And congratulations, he played himself. Which is exactly the sort of end I'd imagine for this kind of guy. And let me tell you, listening to people write about this guy like he's Andy Warhol, which should tell you a little bit about the tone with which they write about him, is infuriating. Also, the people who write about Andy Warhol like he's Andy Warhol are infuriating. Exactly correct. But Edgar Litek ended up being sort of a bellwether for a phenomenon that would end up sweeping the U.S. throughout the 1950s, which was about when he died, which was what I'm going to generously call the tiki aesthetic. People were depressed, and most people couldn't afford to go anywhere tropical or beautiful. So instead, they hyper-focused on images of idealized tropical beautiful areas, such as French Polynesia, Polynesia in general, Hawaii, and Mexico. See, people couldn't afford to go to places like that, which was good for the people who were already there, but especially people in the south and west of the U.S., I was going to say Massachusetts. Yeah, we we get to Mexico so easy. In Southwest Massachusetts, we're just hopping over all day. (laughs) There's a train that goes from Springfield to Mexico City. That would be so cool, though. It would be very cool. Unfortunately, it is not real. I'm sorry I've lied to you all. Let me walk that back a little bit. It would be cool to have trains. (laughs) Again, here in the state of the T, it feels like a pipe dream to have a functional train. But I know, I know. It would be nice, wouldn't it? It would be so good. But what a lot of people, especially low-income people, did have access to was being able to cross the border into Mexico, which was also tropical, beautiful, and it wasn't America, which led to people having all sorts of extremely shitty racist ideas about it. Ah. In particular, famously, the city of Tijuana suffered greatly from the constant, constant incursion of Americans going in there to make a believe it was some sort of sinful paradise. Oh dear. Now, Mexican velvet painters caught on pretty quickly and started creating these paintings for sale and it took off these things started spreading across the border by the hundreds to the thousands until extremely predatory americans again of course fantastic discovered this and set up i forgot what you call it when there's like a factory that works in pieces piecework yeah basically yeah piecework created like a factory where you know an artist would have like maybe one or two colors and then do the background and pass it down the line you mean an assembly line an assembly line thank you so much the word had left me and i was so sad we've done it we have we've solved the riddle we've broken the curse (laughs) we've done it we've done it we have would introduce assembly lines that would occasionally create thousands to ten thousands of paintings in a single week. Damn. The saturation got so bad that eventually Canada got in on it to the point where hundreds of these things were actually making their way to Alaska, where they were particularly appreciated by the native Inuits. Oh. Because, let's face it, for all their reputation, a lot of these things are really beautiful. They are. And even the ones that you could not call classically beautiful are arresting in a very specific way. And also more difficult to create than most people realize. Exactly. A lot of the Mexican painters who took up velvet painting were considered virtuosos. 
like Ken suggested, wonderful thing about velvet when you're painting it is that it sucks up paint, it soaks it. And that makes the painting look bad. Painting on flat canvas is hard enough. Velvet has a very specific texture that will be dragging your brush strokes in every direction except the direction you want it to go in. So you have to have very swift, sure, strong strokes. You have to know what you're doing with every single one of them because there is no erase button on velvet. And you can't just wash it out like you can with watercolors. And you can't just blend it out like you can with oils. And also, before you even do any of this, you have to flip your brain turnways and get used to the concept that instead of creating shadows on a light surface to create forms, you are now bringing light to darkness. So you have to work not from light to shadow, but from shadow to highlight. Very good, thank you. Painting hard, actually. You see a lot of people saying stuff like, well, they're horrible, but you can't look away. The extreme chiaroscuro, which is the fancy art world term for light emerging from darkness in a painting, is what makes people love it. And especially when you're working with bright colors, that when we move into the 70s and 80s, you would get black light reactive velvet paintings. Dope. Fresh as hell. They're very good to look at. And even more traditional paintings, you know, Caravaggio's work was beloved for the exact same reason. It is a unique, unusual skill that provides an extremely striking result. Most to literally all of the painters that were producing these things, largely for day-to-day -day survival for people living in border towns in Mexico that had been absolutely destroyed by the incursion of the Americans, almost all of them were self-taught. This is folk art at its highest form. Some of them are actually doing one-stroke painting, which is in and of itself <laughs> divorced from the difficulty of velvet very hard. I'm really glad that Ken and I got to answer the question of what's the appeal of these things to they are genuinely a very difficult and interesting art with a natural variance introduced by people who are not interested in the academics of art. Returning to the difficulty of painting on velvet as a concept real quick. When you're painting on canvas, you get to sketch it out first with a pencil because canvas, while it does have some weave to it, is relatively flat and will take and hold the graphite in a way that you can see. Take your pencil and sketch on some black velvet. Oh wait, this isn't working. Oh, we have to go in with paint straight off, which means from the sketch level, everything we do to this piece is permanent. <laughs> Yep. Painting hard, actually. It's very difficult. And again, that difficulty, like so many good things, produced really unique and arresting results. True creativity is born from constraints. So true. In short, that's why I respect your average side-of-the-road velvet painter way more than Andy Warhol. Actually, while I was researching for this, I found a black velvet painting that I very much would like to own. Got an eye on that eBay auction. You know what I want? And I know it doesn't exist because she never worked in this medium, but what I really want is Lisa Frank black velvet painting. She should have worked with that medium. I feel like airbrushing was more useful for the kind of graphic design stationery she was producing, but I do really want Marky the Unicorn on black velvet. <laughs> it's the thing. It's so true. One of the things I love the most about Black Velvet is that, you know, unicorns really had a heyday as popular imagery in decor through the late 70s to 80s. So there are a lot of really fantastic unicorn paintings in Black Velvet. And I have always wanted to find one for my own. I believe in you. Someday. The sort of mercenary quality that velvet painters took on in response to U.S. tourism is exactly why black velvet paintings are also synonymous with dead celebrities, basically. Oh, popular demand. It's all about popular demand. The artists would paint whatever they liked at first and then start making things either in the vein of or direct copies of what sold. And at various points in history, Elvis being perhaps the most famous of all the velvet painting icons, that is what people wanted. 
Elvis, I think, was a natural fit because of his own aesthetic in life. He was a man draped in velvets. He wore a lot of velvet himself, a lot of white leather, a lot of suede. So the material, the richness, the bright color, it just very much suited the aesthetic of someone who loved Elvis that much. As well as perennial sellers like nudes or stereotypical imagery of what Americans thought Mexico was like when they weren't around. One gentleman by the name of Chico Gutierrez very famously did a portrait of a random neighbor of his and then ended like a bandolier to make him look like a bandito. Oh dear. And cursed it evermore because it got copied like you wouldn't believe. In fact, the American competition, the introduction of the assembly line approach to making velvet paintings got so bad that in 1979, according to black velvet painter Quinones, painters in Tijuana got so angry that they actually formed a union called the Quetzalcoatl Painters Union. Hell yeah! Of roughly 350 individuals to both combat unfair policing practices stopping them from selling on the street and to be able to muscle out interlopers. And it worked really well for a while. In fact, the only thing that really took them down was Walmart. Oh no. Yeah, gross commercialism like Walmart in the mid to late 80s is the only thing that kind of crushed the everyday appearance of the street velvet painting seller. As well as, you know, God help me, literally every other industry. Another thing I found out is that <laughs> another extremely popular subject matter was Joseph Smith. Yes, that Joseph Smith from Mormonism. Oh, because Utah's right over the border, isn't it? Because Utah's right over the border. Well, there is a couple other states in the way, but not terribly far from the border, is it? <laughs> it's a pretty close place to both cut loose to the detriment of the locals who prefer you wouldn't and pretend you're not cutting loose by making noise at the locals endlessly about how good it would be to be Mormon. Yep. So you end up getting a lot of portraits of Joseph Smith for that particular sort of person. I mean, at least they're taking their money. So what kept black velvet paintings as a tacky kitsch concept rather than the art form that it was in and of itself? Disrespect for indigenous art? Yeah, I'm not gonna lie to you, Chief. It was mostly that. It wasn't helped along by the fact that these things had a low cost point in general from competition largely. And even when they started going out of style for your average American home, because for a while these were very much in fashion even for your upper middle class, when that fad sort of faded away, these things turned up at estate sales, garage sales, and flea markets where low income families would purchase them for decor because they were pretty, creating a very, very strong link from low income homes to black velvet paintings. Which, you know, didn't help the fact that these were already seen as a sort of otherworldly curiosity. It was very easy to psychologically downgrade them from an art form to kitsch. But one of the cool things about Black Velvet art is that it is having a renaissance currently, largely due to the rediscovery of it as a folk art. There is kind of like a growing interest in folk art. Is it also because of TikTok and Instagram? Almost certainly, yeah. Because the thing about art on TikTok and Instagram is the videos and reels that tend to do well are the ones that look like you're creating art in a snap from nothing. And almost no other art form does that quite so well as Black Velvet painting because, like I said, you can't do any prep work. You have to know what you're doing with every stroke from the get and everything you do has to be permanent. So it works the way the layman thinks art works, which is you just put a brush on the canvas and it goes. Yeah, and that is what it looks like to watch people do it. It is something of a hypnotic art form to watch. And yeah, with the rise of what I'm going to call aesthetic culture on Instagram and TikTok, uh, you can definitely see people being more interested in these sideline art forms. A lot of it is probably that weird slide of people doing things ironically until they start realizing the beauty in it and enjoying it unironically. Because there's no such thing as irony. 
Irony doesn't real. Irony doesn't real. Don't do anything ironically that you don't feel like standing up for genuinely. What you do now ironically, you will shortly do sincerely. So choose your irony carefully. In this case, I think it's a good one. Hell yeah. If your irony leads you to appreciate an indigenous folk art, then hell yeah, get ironic, bro. One of the really interesting things that I learned is that during the height of Black Velvet Painting's popularity, around the 1970s, 1980s, to work faster, a lot of times they would paint an image and then while it was still wet, press another piece of velvet to it so that they could immediately fill it in and have another identical image. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's why you can see tons of them that have weird mirror images is they were creating very quick, rough templates for themselves. One thing I thought was really interesting too uh, regarding the concepts of irony and hypocrisy, Liteg himself, right, got in big trouble for copying photographs without credit to the point where he was actually issued a cease and desist for a particular portrait of Jesus he would paint. And I actually saw people say that part of the reason Black Velvet painting was seen as lowbrow was because of its disrespect for copyright. Sorry, he was painting Jesus from a photograph? He was painting Jesus from another painting. Oh, okay. By a living painter who did not enjoy that happening to him in his work. Gotcha. But yeah, alongside a resurging interest in the art of Black Velvet painting is a resurging interest of Mexicans embracing this as their own tradition, as a part of their history, where there is actually a lot of Mexican Black Velvet paintings made for Mexican consumers that are largely Aztec legends, local legends, and images of local landscapes and stuff. Nice. Which I think is really beautiful. Very popular is the legend of Popocatepetl and Iztacihuatl, which is basically Romeo and Juliet, but Aztec, and related to two active volcanoes. As you do. Another reason that this art form kind of endures in popularity is because of the low price point. We love an affordable collectible. We adore an affordable collectible. It's got two very, very cool things going for it. Low price point because of its subset as a commercial object, of course. Lots and lots and lots of them were made. And because of the uniqueness of the imagery. There are images you can get in black velvet that you just can't get from traditional art. Very true. The painting I was talking about earlier was a wolf looking onto the moon in the background while three dolphins did tricks in the ocean. Hell yes! Metal as fuck! Find me a fucking classical painting that depicts that. You can't. You can't. And you know what that one's going for right now? $20. Hell yeah. And you know where it's going on my wall. Although the resurgence in interest in black velvet paintings does mean that some of the more masterful examples and some of the more unusual depictions, uh, a lot of the images from the civil rights movement in the 1970s have become very popular. Those can command into the hundreds pretty easily. For art especially, I consider that to be pretty low price, pretty low cost buy-in, when your standard art can start anywhere from five to a thousand dollars easily. And again, it looks so fucking tight. Holy shit. Hell yeah. And that's why I think we should all collect black velvet paintings. Yes. And that's why my cat is stepping on the keyboard. Because she loves you. She is a black velvet, isn't she? Yes, she you is. Are. She's a black velvet kitty. So yeah, Ken, what did you think? Do you have any questions? I need a unicorn on my wall. Toot sweet. Sources for today include the book Black Velvet Art by Eric Ilyason. Article, Chicano Black Velvet Paintings by Hyperallergic.com, CollectorsWeekly.com, Velvet Underdogs in Praise of the Paintings the Art World Loves to Hate, BaltimoreSun.com, Velvet Art for Connoisseurs, MetroTimes.com, Mexican Town Exhibit Elevates the Art of Black Velvet Paintings, and ChicagoTribune.com, The Soft Cell, which is a very funny name for an article about black velvet painting. Ha, uh, because it's the texture. It's very funny. <laughs>
If you would like to suggest an episode topic or just say hello, you can email us directly at antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends. You can tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com, or you can message us on Instagram at instagram.com slash antiquesfreaks. Support Kent's career as an auctioneer. That was impressive. <laughs> if you want to share your deep, deep love of underappreciated art forms with us, consider scrolling on down to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leaving us a review. Five stars, I hear you say? I hope so. And if you would like more Antiques Freaks in your week, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks, where every week we read and review a chapter of the Victorian Penny Dreadful Varney the Vampire or the Feast of Blood. Special shout-outs to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. So much love. And thank you in particular for listening. That's right. You. Au revoir. Goodbye.